0: For your awards consideration, Max presents The Last of Us, the HBO original series starring Pedro Pascal as Joel, a hardened survivor hired to smuggle Ellie, a 14-year-old girl, out of an oppressive quarantine zone. What starts as a small job soon becomes a brutal and heartbreaking journey as they both must traverse the U.S. and depend on each other for survival. Don't miss the critically acclaimed series IndieWire calls astounding and poignant. All episodes of The Last of Us are now streaming on Max. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hempill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest today is director Leslie Linka-Gladder, who I've been a fan of going back to her work on amazing stories in the 1980s. Since then, she's become one of the most versatile and accomplished directors in television, having done great work on Twin Peaks, Mad Men, The West Wing, Homeland, and too many others to mention. Her latest release is the HBO Max limited series Love and Death, a true crime drama written by David E. Kelly that follows an extramarital affair in a small Texas town in the late 70s and how it leads to tragedy. The tone Gladder creates for the show is truly extraordinary, as it's entertaining without trivializing the tragedy, and is sympathetic to all involved without diluting the horror of some of the characters' actions. I talked to Leslie about her approach to the show via Zoom while she was prepping a new series with Robert De Niro, and had a great time hearing her insights. Here's our conversation. I want to start with whatever your initial conversations were like with David E. Kelly. Uh, when you come on to something like this... Does he already have the scripts written? Is he in the process of writing it? What What are the first discussions you have with him? Oh.
1: So actually, the Texas Monthly, the two Texas Monthly stories were sent to both of us somewhere around the same time. And, you know, David and I, I've always loved his work. We have both always wanted to work together. And I'm going to take his wordsmith-like words because he said, you know, between us, we probably have about 70 years of experience and somehow we've never worked together, which is just shocking. And we both read these stories. And I tell you, if it wasn't a true story, you couldn't make it up. It is really a situation where real life is so much stranger than fiction. And I think we were both very compelled by it. I think in some ways we're exploring something that is quite inexplicable about the human condition. And we were much more interested in why this happened rather than how in terms of the true crime genre. Not that I don't like that genre. I do. But I'm much more interested in the deep psychology Under that than the actual crime itself. And that brought us together. And we went out and pitched together and got it set up. And then David set out to write all seven hours. And we were in constant contact as scripts came in. It was a great development process. He is obviously a brilliant writer. And it speaks right to the themes that I love, that things are not what they appear to be. And you have to look deeper to see what's really going on underneath the surface.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I really liked about the show was the kind of inexplicable behavior. And yet there's something about the way the actors play it that even if you can't articulate it, you sort of feel what's going on. You feel what why this happened and how this happened on an emotional level. And I'm wondering what kinds of conversations then you have with, say, Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons um, about that, because I, I felt like you know, her in particular, I mean, really both of them were really, really good at non-verbally conveying what their characters were going through.
1: How blessed am I to be able to work with both of these two actors? I mean, really with the whole cast, with, you know, Lizzie and Jesse, who are extraordinary, and Lily and Patrick and Kristen Ritter. I mean, literally down to people who came in for a couple of days, like Brian Darcy James and Tom Pelfrey was there. I mean, he you know, he becomes so important in the last part of the show. I just felt like I was blessed with the most extraordinary group of actors. And I think we were all interested in what is bucolic on the surface, you know, and what is very different underneath the surface. And it's, you know, it's kind of the dark side of the American dream. I think we were all interested in, you know, you're looking at men and women, in 1978 to 1980. And, you know, they, this, this group of people, they did everything right. They got married when they were 20. They had the kids, they, you know, had a good life. The men, you know, were scientists. They moved out to the suburbs and went to church and sang in the choir and were involved with each other in a good social set. Well, why is it that there is like a hole inside of your heart and soul that is a mile wide? that just can't be filled, and you can't really talk about it. So that's all the stuff that I think we were all interested in. You know, they were all kind of in some sort of boxes you know, that they didn't have the skill set to get out of. And remember, they're 28, 29 years old. And that, to me, is really interesting. And of course, Candy picks the wrong choice of events you know, to fill that hole. No, but the fact that it was there is what interests me, you, know? and I think all of us,
0: yeah, it's so interesting, like by the time you get to the end of the show, and I don't want to have too many spoilers here for people who are who listen to it before they've seen the whole thing. but it is interesting then, going back and looking at the beginning, how the stuff that seems sort of, sort of like innocent fun. In the first episode where it is just candy like kind of on a lark like oh you know i want to i'm attracted to you and let's make something happen and you're kind of with her as like oh this was just a, a fun little naughty adventure and the way that kelly kind of gradually brings the danger into that and the tragedy is is really uh great and yes. so when you're dealing with something that's like, i mean i'm just curious in general not even specific to this show but you know you always have such strong performances in your work and as you say some of that is you get lucky with casting whatever but but what do you like to do as a director how do you see like your role in terms of creating an environment that's going to make the actors the most comfortable and the most able to do their best work?
1: That's a great question and it's absolutely critical. You have to create a safe working environment and that is absolutely essential. I love actors. I love that they show us something about the human condition and that is a very brave act to go to that deep place and expose it and especially when you're exposing things that are not necessarily pretty. So I feel that creating that kind of environment is absolutely essential. And I think as I've gotten older, I mean, I have an absolute no asshole policy. Everyone, you have to treat everyone with respect. I don't care what job you're doing. This is a team sport. We are only as good as our team. And that I feel is incumbent on me You know, to create and, you know, the whole David E. Kelly, the whole all of, you know, the executive producers, we have to create that environment for everyone to be able to do their best possible work. And I think the actors did feel safe to do that. And I know that when Jesse and Lizzie and I got together to kind of plot out the affair, the affair, you know, again, it is the most unsexy beginning of any affair ever. They talk about it for months. There is not one bit of spontaneity going on there. I mean, they're constantly discussing. And, you know, it's almost like they're teenagers. They're almost like in high school. Uh, going on a first date, except, of course, it's dangerous. There's a level of, you know, they're they're playing with fire here. And, of course, it came out of the the Texas Monthly stories that they actually got together. She made lasagna at her house. And on butcher paper, she wrote the list of their do's and don'ts. So they would stay safe and protected in having this affair. And we copied the actual list. From the articles that they still have, um, so that to me was so interesting. And but of course you're playing with fire, you know. And we did chart out. I I really believe that they mostly wanted to be seen and heard. That going and having lunch and sitting and talking was in equal part to having sex. You know, it was not this hot affair. It was more, I I it was more they became best friends you know, and have this special time together. Again, I'm not trying to excuse any behavior, but I think there was a, a kind of innocence to it and, and a little bit of a sense of humor because of the circumstances. I never want to laugh at the characters, you know, in the same way when Betty and Alan go to Marriage Encounter in episode two. That is actually really moving. You don't have access to therapy and marriage encounter is a way for couples to be able to open up and talk to one another. But it was actually set in a place called Dunfay's Royal Inn. And it was a, it was a theme hotel that looked like a medieval castle. Like, I would never have put that scene in a medieval castle if it hadn't really been set there. You now, how crazy is that? But what happens there is really moving.
0: Yeah, I mean, that speaks to another strength of the series, I think, which is the tonal balance that you and Kelly strike, where, you know, I do feel like it would be so easy to go too far one direction or another, where you either kind of lose the humor of that, or you go so far that, as you say, you're laughing at the characters. And so, I mean, how vigilant did you have to be about kind of monitoring that and, you know, calibrating that tone?
1: I think it was being sure that the actors themselves never thought they were making fun of the character. They were always within those characters, you know, and that was essential to all of us. Again, we plotted through what the affair was and where how it progressed. And then, of course, it it starts to mean so much to Candy, you know, and and when it starts to split apart, you know, we see other sides coming out. And I love seeing other sides of characters because we are all so multifaceted. Again, it speaks to the deep hole that's there. I can tell you, I really believe ha- had any number of things happened on the day of that horrible murder in a different way, it would never have happened. You know, and again, I, I don't want to vilify or glorify anything. This was absolutely horrifying. And the worst scene I've ever shot in my entire career, the most upsetting scene ever, because it's it was based on something real. It is two housewives, two women, young women in uh, this horrible laundry room, you know, with an axe. You know, I can barely pick up an axe, you know, to actually swing that thing 41 times. Something had to have cracked apart psychologically to even for that to happen. And again, we only have one account of that murder. We don't have both sides of it. So... Yeah, I tell you, the two days of shooting yeah, were so emotional for all of us. Like at the end of the day, the three of us just held each other and cried. It was so intense. I've never cried on a set before. There's no crying in baseball, but there was crying. And I think for the whole crew, everyone was really affected by the horror of it. And then, but Candy went and took a shower afterwards. I mean, it's not like this was a murderer who had a plan, you know, she, she was horrified, you know, and did if she was trying to not get caught, she did everything wrong.
0: What kind of preparation did you do for that scene? The two days you're shooting the murder scene? I mean, is that the kind of thing that you pretty meticulously plan out ahead of time.
1: Absolutely, it was all storyboarded. We had, I had rehearsed numerous times with both Lily and Lizzie and their stunt doubles. So they knew exactly what the choreography was to try to break it down unemotionally because they would have to be so emotional when it was happening. And they knew exactly what the shots were. They knew exactly when we would break for the day. And I think having that clarity allowed them to do what they did in there.
0: You mentioned the, um, you know, tracking this affair. And I'm curious, you know, how much are you able to shoot in continuity? Or is this the kind of thing, are you shooting this like one
1: big movie or are you shooting an episode at a time? This was like shooting one big movie. We cross-boarded the first four. Um, The wonderful Clark Johnson came in and did five and six. I came back and did seven and It was boarded that that first four hours was was intense. And but let's say the the all the the motel scenes were shot in continuity. And we tried, you know, it was interesting when we put the schedule together. I really wanted to shoot all of the community scenes first. So you really got a sense of the world that everyone was functioning in the church, The singing, the picnics, like this is a world of friends and friendship and a tight knit community. And what it did by shooting those things first, it really built a community with the actors and they all became really good friends. And I think it was, uh, you know, my first AD slash producer, Sunday Stevens, who's amazing. You know, it was really in some ways it was a hard thing to start with but it was the right thing to start with because our days were like, we had so many backgrounds. It's a period piece. Everyone has to go through hair and makeup, you know? So it was intense, but I think absolutely the right community building and also for the cast, for all of us, for the crew, it was kind of a joyous beginning.
0: So you mentioned your first AD and uh, if my memory is correct, you've worked with Sunday many times before. Uh, So how, vital is that relationship that director ad relationship
1: for oh, you huge huge i mean it's you know she's a partner in crime now i say crime i shouldn't have said crime in in creation in storytelling but yes i mean between the dp tim ives and sunday and i we you know I'm, I, I come at a dance. I plan everything. And then I plan it so that in the moment on the set, I can be free. And that's my process. So if I don't go through it and kind of walk in the shoes of the characters, I don't feel like I really own the story. And for me, it's essential to own the story and really understand, you know, what's what's the text? What's the subtext? What do the characters want? What's really going on underneath? Because I want that kind of depth in the storytelling and performances. And I feel that it's there, I want it to be there. So when you're
0: figuring all that out from the script, are you showing up on the day and seeing what the actors do first? Are you walking around the set before they get there and putting yourself in their shoes? Figure it out. Take me through how you uh, block a scene.
1: Again, what I love about directing is nobody does it the same way, but I do plan everything out. You know, I do you know walk in the shoes of the of the cat actors, plan the shots. I have an idea for blocking a clear idea idea for where I'm putting the camera, what all the shots are in the scene. But I leave it open when the actors come in. I want to see what they're going to bring to the table. I don't want to come in and impose what I think it should be because I might miss out on an incredible opportunity of something I could never have thought of alone in a room. So I feel to me, my process is the combo of those two. Because I planned it out, and I have a plan. If nothing happens, I have a great way to do this. But I'm hoping something more interesting will happen, and I will adjust to that. So that's the gift of seeing the opportunities in what happens in front of you and being open to that.
0: Well, you know, it seems to me watching this show, you know, you have what for me seems like one of the hardest things to do as a director, which is courtroom scenes. Because I just always look mm-hmm. at courtroom scenes and I think, okay, you, you know, you don't want the camera, you you want, you want there to be, you want it to be dynamic, but you also don't want it to get in the way. You can't distract from what the actors are doing, but you've just got this big room where everybody's sort of standing in place. And how do you approach something like that? And what's it like, you know, just, covering a scene? Cause I, my, I, mean, I mean, I've never been on a set where someone was doing a courtroom scene, but I just imagine like the tedium of trying to get all the shots you need for something like that. I mean, how, how do you approach that kind of material?
1: So for me, it's all about point of view. Who is taking me through the scene? Because it could be very generic if you don't know whose story you're telling. And I'm surprised so many times where that's unclear And to me, that's really important. And I felt there were very clear times when we are in Candy's point of view, you know, even to the point where we're focused on her glasses behind her and the person who's talking is out of focus because I'm inside of her brain. So to me, point of view helps make it specific rather than general, you know, and uh so that is one thing. Uh, and then I think you want to see how testimony lands on people. And that's also very important, uh, because I think you want to have that energy in the courtroom. I wanted well, it was very important to me, even though it's a true story, we know how it ends. I didn't want to feel like you, knew the ending. I wanted, let's say, both the defense and the prosecutor to be equally skilled like their final summation, where you could be thinking, oh, my God, who is going to win this? You know, I wanted to feel there was a chance the verdict could be different. And then again, of course, Lizzie's testimony. You know, that was the first thing I shot in that long sequence. I think it was like 15, 16 pages of of testimony which is incredible. And I did two takes on her. That was it. You know, Of, of her type, type, you know, coverage. And then I worked my way back, you know, because you needed to see how it landed on people, but to her telling the story, even though I knew I was cutting away to what actually happened was bone chilling. And that was just watching her tell the story. And I think that speaks to her depth as an actress. And also what was important to all of us about the humanity of the story. Well, talking about doing that in two takes,
0: you know, brings up another question for me, which, and this maybe is, again, kind of a general directing question, maybe even more than specific to this show. But when you come across actors, if you were doing a scene where you've got several actors, you know, all actors, just like you were saying all directors are different, all actors are different. And all actors are different in terms of their background, their training or lack thereof or whatever. But also, you know, you can get actors, you know, I've run into situations with actors where you have someone who is great on the first and second take and they're never going to be better. And then there's others who need to work up to it and they're great on 7 or 8. And how do you reconcile those things as an as a director to make sure you're kind of getting the best out of everyone?
1: That Absolutely happens. I have absolutely been in scenes where you have two actors whose process is really different, whose rhythm is really different, and you have to be there for both of them you know, There's a certain point where the other actor in the scene knows what this actor's process is you know, and it, it is what it is. You have to be able to get the performance no matter what you know that's that's my job. You know, is to be sure it's there on film and you have to then be sure that each of those actors is protected in that process. So they feel like they're seen and heard, and even though the process might be different for each of them. I mean, it's tricky, you know, and I feel, well, you know, as a director, you have to be a lot of different things. Uh, whether you're you know a therapist or your know, mom or dad or you know older sister you're gonna be whatever you have to be to make it work.
0: Yeah you you have to be all those things and as Ridley Scott pointed out the director also needs those things but you know they don't get them so the director is kind of lonely there because we need a therapist and a mom and a dad. Totally, a a dad. totally
1: yeah <laughs> no, absolutely but you know I love I love that we get to tell stories in the way that we do. You know I love that it is a team sport in that way, you know, and that I think especially now, I really don't want to be the smartest person in the room, but I sure as shit want to be in the room with the smartest people. So the best people you can get and, you know, somebody else has a better idea. Hallelujah. It makes the, it makes it better. You know, I am grateful So you want to, I think you want to create an environment or I want to create an environment. Somebody feels free to say, yeah, hey, have you thought about this? Or what do you think? You know, and I'm in the wonderful position to say, thank you so much. And I can either do it or not do it, but it's, I want the openness to people feel like they can, you know, they're there, they can exercise that creativity.
0: Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I find sometimes the difficult thing is knowing, you know, you can have good ideas that aren't necess- that are contribute you know, people are contributing that aren't necessarily the right good ideas in conjunction with other good ideas or the right good ideas for this particular piece. And I'm curious for you at this point, do you are you experienced enough that it's just kind of intuitive for you and you can easily filter out which are the ones that don't aren't right? Or is it, or are there still times when that's a, a struggle? Oh, or a I,
1: if, if I can't tell immediately, I mean, you know, it's so interesting. I I feel like the more I listen to my instincts and I keep a clear channel with my instincts, like when I'm watching a scene, you know, I think, you know, if it's working or not. I've, I've been working with actors a long time. When I started directing from being a choreographer, first thing I did was go to acting class. You know, you know and if you tell your instincts to shut up they won't talk to me anymore and i want to be sure that that never happens you know and if i get stressed out or i'm looking at the clock and like it doesn't help keep that channel open so if somebody says oh les did you think of that and i'm i will sit there and go for a second thank you but i i think this is the plan or it's like oh my god that is fantastic thank you so much it's exactly what we're going to do i try to weigh it all out but i you know it's not like someone's throwing things all the time it's but i want to be sure that there is the freedom to be able to to do that cuz it makes it more exciting and i think one of the things that was interesting about this project is in some way you're you're certainly in the first 3 hours you're laughing but you feel anxious, and that's a very interesting one to play with.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, that is again. It's one of the things I found really interesting about the show was by the time I got to the end, how differently I was responding emotionally to it. And I'm actually curious now to go back and watch it again because I'm curious to see how the first few episodes play, having seen where it goes. I, you know, I actually want to circle back to something you you were talking yeah. before about wanting to create this kind of bucolic environment and and the sense of community. And where did you, how did that inform your choice of where to shoot this? I mean, did you actually shoot this where this took place or were you shooting somewhere different? Talk a little bit about finding the
1: locations. I mean, location is incredibly important to me because I think environment is so much, it, it helps create character. You know, the environment is always a character me to me, the world. I wanted to shoot in Texas. We all did. This is a Texas story. I was born in Texas and I've never shot there before. This is the first time. And we talked about going to Dallas. This, this takes place in a small town, Wiley, Texas and McKinney. These towns now have grown and they're huge. You yeah. know, so Wiley was like 3,500 people in 1978. It's now like 50,000 people. So it doesn't look anything like it did. So we ended up going to Austin because it was so much easier to get, or or there were so many small towns that looked like they could be Wiley, you know, because they were 3,000, 4,000 people. And we had a choice of a number of them. So it made more sense to be there because Dallas is now so big just to get out of town was an hour, over an hour. So that was the choice. And I feel really good about that choice. I wanted to feel the wide open spaces of Texas and the beauty of the land. And, you know, I wanted to see that. And then what's underneath, you know, it is the dark side of the American dream. It is an American tragedy.
0: Well, before we go, I guess, you know, I always like to get a trying to get a scoop here. So is there anything you can tell me about uh, what you're working on now? Is this something you can talk about or is it? I can. It's,
1: it's come out in the world. I just came <laughs> off of a scout. It is a six part limited series for Netflix. Uh, it's called Zero Day, uh, written by Noah Oppenheim, who wrote Jackie. And up until like two months ago, was the president of NBC News. And he teamed with Eric Newman, who created Narcos And Michael Schmidt, who's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent for The New York Times, the three of them came up with the story, and Noah and Eric wrote it, and uh, it's called Zero Day, and it's about a zero-day event. Have you heard, do you know what that is? Okay, zero-day event is the thing that the intelligence community is most fearful of. It is a defect in a software that a hacker can get inside and infect a whole industry. So what, you know, this has happened. The first one is like 2010, the Stuxnet virus in the Iran, you know, all the Iran power plants. And now we've experienced these in various industries, but always one at a time. You know, so this takes the premise, which is not that far in the future, you know, and we have great advisors and it takes the premise that there is a zero day event that affects all industries, you know, simultaneously. What it does look at is would we behave differently if something like this happened again? Would we go to war with the wrong country? Would we give up all of our... Rights are, you know, rights to privacy to feel safe again. So it looks at like things that I'm really interested in. And um, Robert De Niro plays the last ex president who could reach across the aisle. And he comes back to head the zero day commission. So that's kind of the setup and we we're putting together an amazing cast. I'm so excited. And the writing is so smart. And the chance well, yeah. to work with like a hero of mine, Robert De Niro.
0: I was just going to say, I mean, I can't wait to see what you and De Niro come up with uh, working together. That's going to be really exciting. So, well, I always love talking movies and TV with you, Leslie. You're just the greatest. So, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for doing this with me. I really appreciate it's it. It's really
1: great me. to talk to you. Thank you for watching it. I it was it was an incredible experience to delve into this material. I I tell you.